Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. It is a good morning. I am glad that you are here. Uh, We are kicking off this morning a series of sermons in the Gospel of Matthew that will take us throughout the end of the school year. So we're going to go from Matthew 1 all the way to the end of Matthew 28 uh, in this school year. So we have a lot to cover. Um, Many of you know there's 28 chapters in Matthew. We've got about uh, 36 to 40 weeks between now and graduation. So that's a little under a chapter a week that we're going to have to keep that kind of clip up. Um, So bear with me. A lot of the things that we'll do is going to be more overview in nature. Sometimes we'll dig in. Um, but that's what we're going to do. As far as you uh, can, you can clearly see uh, in your Bibles, <clears throat> before the Gospel of Matthew, you probably have a, a page that says the New Testament, right? Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. That does not mean it is the earliest written, right? But it does mean that there's, there's, a, there's a reason why Matthew is placed first. There's an intentional order to the New Testament. Maybe you've never thought about that, but we have four Gospels, Then we have the book of Acts, then we have Paul's letters, then we have general letters, and then we have the Revelation, right? There's there's an order to what's going on. Matthew was probably written in the mid to late 60s, uh, and we'll get to probably a good reason why when we get later on into Matthew chapter 24, where we hear about what I think is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, But it was probably written in the mid to late 60s, so about 30 years or so after the work and ministry of Jesus. And so within those 30 years, you got to think Matthew, the author of this gospel, is doing his research. He's reading other writings like Mark's gospel, which was probably first. He's interviewing people who were alive at the time of Jesus's ministry. It wasn't far enough away from Jesus's work that Matthew could have published this gospel and people would have said, well, I wasn't there and I don't remember. So I guess that's okay. I guess that's right. No, Matthew wrote this very soon after uh, Jesus's ministry. Well, who was Matthew? We're going to talk about just some introductory materials, some introductions to Matthew. Um, Matthew, or Levi, uh, was a tax collector who became an apostle. He was trained as a tax collector. So he was the one who would go to different towns, different cities, different areas. He would receive taxes from those families, and he would write those things down, give them off to the Roman Empire. I mean, he was the one who would account for all of these things. So he was trained to be a kind of scribe. He was trained to be able to teach, and, or not to teach, but to, to, to collect and to write and to organize and to send uh, uh, large amounts of information. Who is Matthew writing to in this gospel? I mean, we have it, and we know that as the church of Jesus Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit is using Matthew's writings to speak to us, but who was the original audience? Who originally received Matthew's gospel? Well, our best guess is that Jewish Christians and Jews who were on the fence about following Jesus as the Messiah are the people who Matthew has in mind when he writes this gospel. So you'll see over and over again in this gospel that Matthew is a genius when it comes to the Old Testament. One scholar says that if you count all the direct quotations and the allusions, like the the echoes that send us back to the Old Testament, if you count all those things up in Matthew, you will find over 300 of them. So about 10 per chapter, right? You'll find these quotations and allusions that bring you back over and over and over again to the Hebrew Scriptures. 
So that's who he's writing to, but what's his purpose? I mean, obviously he's wanting us to know who Jesus is, but what is the purpose of his writing? So if you have Matthew 1, hold your place and find Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. At the very end, it's about uh, verses 51 and 52. So flip a couple pages, Matthew 13, 51, 52. Jesus has just begun his uh, long uh, chain of parables, teaching these uh, spiritual truths through these small stories. And in verse 51, after teaching some different parables, Jesus says to the disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Verse 52. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And most scholars would say that that verse right there is Matthew saying, I'm the one who's writing this. I am a trained scribe. Another word for that is a discipled scribe. And this discipled scribe has learned from his master Jesus about the kingdom of heaven. And like the master of a house, he is able to bring out treasures both new and old for us to see. So the purpose of Matthew's gospel is to draw out these treasures of the Old Testament and to show how they all find fulfillment and completion and newness in the Lord Jesus. Old and new treasures abound in his work for us to receive. So what this means for us is this. If we don't have a good grasp on the Old Testament we will struggle to grasp all that Matthew is doing. While we won't be able to cover it all this school year, I will point out major themes along the way. So that's the hope. So much of Matthew's gospel is familiar to us, right? I mean, we think about the Sermon on the Mount. We think about the Beatitudes. We think about his miracles, his parables. We think about the birth story. We think about the three kings, the three magi coming to worship Jesus. We think about his arrest and his betrayal and his death on the cross, his resurrection. We think about the Great Commission. I mean, so much of this gospel is familiar to us. And we will go on this journey together from a genealogy and wise men worshiping a baby all the way to a wooden cross and an empty tomb and a Great Commission to the people of God who find life in him. And all throughout, we will see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. Like He is the fulfillment. He is the one who fulfills all that God has promised. If all of the Old Testament is a shadow, Jesus is the substance. So much of what Matthew is doing, though, will be on display in chapter 1. So let's begin reading what we see. Uh, Let's begin reading chapter 1 and see what the Lord has in store for us in his word. Find Matthew chapter 1. We'll read the first 17 verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, 
and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we are grateful. Grateful that we have your word. And as we have just read, what seems to be unimportant, what seems to be boring, what seems to be just a long list of hard-to-pronounce names, God, you are doing something. You are showing us something about who you are. You're showing us something about what's to come. And so, Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning from Matthew chapter 1, that you would fill us with curiosity, that we might want to understand your word and then satisfy our desires by your spirit. Lord, help me. Uh, to be the means by which that satisfaction comes. Use me to teach your word, empowered by your spirit, rightly and truthfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's two big sections that we want to talk about this morning in Matthew chapter 1. The first is the genealogy of Jesus. The genealogy of Jesus. Now, you and I, when we read a good story, um, we probably don't start off with 14 generations, followed by 14 generations, followed by 14 generations of a family tree. Uh, That's usually not very uh, captivating writing. That's usually not a really good way to start a movie. That's that's, that's a strange and odd way to us to start something so important. A long list of fathers and sons, as well as a handful of mothers scattered throughout. We really can't get past the genealogy, and we really can't get past the first verse without seeing Matthew's plan. So look back at verse 1. We see Matthew begins with the phrase, the book of the genealogy, to chronicle the origins of Jesus. This same phrase is used two times in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, to talk about the origins of heaven and earth. And it's used in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, to chronicle the genealogy of the first man, Adam. So when Matthew uses these words that have only been used twice in Scripture up to this point, I think Matthew is trying to get us to think back and say, what I'm about to tell you is of similar importance to the origins of the world and the beginning of humanity. Matthew's genealogy is perhaps a tipping off point that what we're about to see is the origins of a new heavens and earth and a new humanity in Jesus. We see here in verse 1 that Jesus is Christ. And just so we're on the same page, that's not Jesus' last name, right? Like it's not Jesus, it's not like Mr. and Mrs. Christ, right? Uh, Christ is not a last name, it's a title. 
right? It's a title, like uh, Mr. President or King so-and-so or Governor. It, it's a title, and Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. That word Christ is the word Christos in Greek, or in Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. So, so when you read Messiah in the Old Testament or Christ in the New Testament, you're reading the same idea, the same word. It just means anointed one, someone who is set apart for a special purpose. Oftentimes priests were anointed, right? Kings were anointed, prophets were anointed. But there was one in the Old Testament who would be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. For hundreds of years, Jews had been waiting the day for when their promised one of God would come to be their anointed one, their Messiah from God. They were waiting for one who would come as the son of David to set up a kingdom that would never end. They were waiting for the son of Abraham through whom God promised to bless all the nations back in the book of Genesis. And wrapped up in this one verse, Matthew is saying, that promised one, that son of David, that son of Abraham, he's here. He's here in this person. In this one person, all of these promises are being fulfilled. Matthew is saying to those Jews who knew all of these promises and for generations have been praying and awaiting God to fulfill them, Matthew is saying to them, you're about to see its fulfillment. This genealogy shows you and me a few things. First, we see that God is faithful to his promises. All throughout this list, we see a group of very unlikely, very sketchy people. People that we probably would not hang out with. People that your parents would say are a part of the wrong crowd. People that would cause you to turn the other way. And these are the people that God has used to bring about the Messiah. We just studied the book of Ruth in the spring, right? I mean, all, most of us know the story now a little bit better than before. What are the odds that Ruth would be back in Bethlehem to meet Boaz, to have a son after losing her husband, who would one day be the father, the grandfather of King David? If you know the story, it's practically zero. Those are the odds. And yet, God's providence orchestrates the flow of history to prove time and time again his faithfulness. Or even the exile in Babylon, right? The list of uh, the third list after the deportation and exile in Babylon, there are lists, and, and before that with Solomon, there are kings and people who did not honor the Lord. All throughout this list, there are people who did not follow the God of Israel. Over and over, we see God's power to use even the wickedness of his stiff-necked people to bring about his good purposes. And here's the point for you and me. You and I right now are living in a messy and chaotic and broken world. And sometimes where we are, and, and from our perspective looking at the world, it's hard to notice whether or not God is in control. I mean, it's hard to notice just looking around the world. I mean, we were praying this morning as pastors for the country of, of Afghanistan. I don't know how much you know, but it is, it is not good there. Specifically, not good for those who are followers of Jesus. And if you're, a, if you're an Afghani Christian right now, it might seem really hard to believe that God is in control. You wonder in your own life whether 
all you see in your life is darkness, how can there be any light? But what the genealogy of Jesus shows us is that we are not seeing the whole picture. Our perspective is not the whole picture. None of these people in this genealogy saw the whole story in their lifetime, nor did they see God's fulfillment of his promises in their lifetime. But looking back at God's faithfulness to miraculously bring about the Messiah from unlikely and even impossible places, you and I can trust that he will be faithful to his people even today. So when you doubt God's faithfulness, and those doubts will come, think back to an unlikely place. Think back to the genealogy in Matthew and remember that God is faithful. Here's the other point that we see in the genealogy. Jesus is the key and fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He's the key. It proves that Jesus really is the son of David and the son of Abraham. These forward-looking promises that the people of God received in the Old Testament are wrapped up in one person. And in this list, as we have it, we see that not just chronologically through this list of names, but we also see it in its structure. The list that we have itself, 14 generations, followed by 14 generations, followed by 14 generations, is symbolic. And that doesn't mean it's not historical, but it does mean that it's doing something more than listing names, right? So you can compare this genealogy with the genealogy that we find in Luke's gospel, and you will see that there are some discrepancies. Now, it's not to say that those discrepancies can't be reconciled, but it is saying that Matthew is doing something very specific by telling you 14 generations and then 14 generations and then 14 generations. I mean, he tells you that in verse 17, right? Over and over and over again. He wants you to see what he's doing. Now, what is he trying to do? What does 14 and then 14 and then 14 mean to you? What does it mean to me? It doesn't really mean much to me. But listen to D.A. Carson. In writing on this passage, he says, the simplest explanation, the one that fits the context the best, observes that the name David in Hebrew has a numerical value of 14. So in Old Testament Hebrew, there's no vowels, so it would just be D-V-D. And if you add up D, V, D, you get 4, 6, 4. That's 14. By this symbolism, Matthew is pointing out that the promised son of David is assuredly come. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. It's almost as if Matthew is saying to the Jews in the first century and to us now, the son of David is coming. The son of David is coming. The son of David is coming. So when we as Christians go back to read the Spirit-inspired Word from Genesis to Malachi, if we believe that Christ is the key, then we have been given a priceless treasure because now we can go back to this Old Testament, these, these historic books of our faith and see what they really have in store because these treasures that have always existed in these pages, in these books, can now be unlocked for us in clarity because we now know what they're talking about. I mean, we, we don't need to gloss over the fact that we have been given an, a priceless gift. And, and this is what Brian Payne talked about just last week. We have a complete canon of Scripture. 
We have a completed Bible. We have all that we need. It is sufficient for all that we need. And so we can go back to this much of your Bible with the key that unlocks all of the treasures for us to find. So don't neglect the Old Testament. Don't neglect the Old Testament because there are treasures there. Don't neglect the hard work of learning Israel's history and God's promises and all that you find in those books. That's what we learn from the genealogy. Well, that's the first big section in Matthew chapter 1. The second section that we want to focus on is the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, the second point, second idea, the birth of Jesus. We're going to pick up in verse 18 and read through the end. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In this passage, we see miracle of miracles. We see God the Son, eternal, immense, infinite in his holiness and his power and his glory and his knowledge and his wisdom and his goodness and his love. This person, this God, humbles himself and takes the form of a servant. He took on human flesh and dwelled among his people. He became, in a remarkable way, Emmanuel, God with us. Mary, a young woman betrothed to Joseph, and by all accounts, it is not it is a pretty common consensus among scholars that Mary, by being a young woman betrothed to Joseph, would be in the youth group with you. So anywhere from 12 to 17. Is betrothed to Joseph, which is more committed than a modern engagement, but not so much as married, right? So just think more intense. They would call each other husband and wife, but they weren't fully husband and wife yet. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Faithfulness to God's purposes and direction for Mary, although a priceless treasure to be able to carry the Son of God. It was nonetheless very costly for Mary. A baby out of wedlock in our culture is already surrounded by questions and shame a baby out of wedlock in that culture would have been a banner of shame that many would draw attention to. 
And so Joseph, the one in view in our gospel, was a righteous man, a just man. It was unbelievable that the woman that he was betrothed to was now pregnant. And so following the Mosaic law of Deuteronomy 24, he planned to divorce her. But instead of putting on a public spectacle and shaming her and joining her culture and badgering her with shame, he planned to divorce her quietly. But an angel of the Lord appeared to him and assured him. Look again. Verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take her as your wife. Joseph, son of David, do not fear. The angel is reminding Joseph here in this moment that he is in a family line that is rich with promise. Take Mary to be your wife and trust that the child is truly from the Spirit. I don't know about you, that would seem like a pretty hard command to follow. I mean... No one has been asked to do this before in history. This is not like an uncommon occurrence. Trust that your fiancé's baby is from the Spirit of God. This would have been a terribly difficult command to follow. It's so out of the ordinary. It's so counterintuitive. It's so difficult to explain to yourself, much less to other people. It would also cause Joseph to share with Mary that shame. Questions and rumors would fly. Where did this baby really come from? But down in verse 24, Joseph models for you and for me what our response is to be when we hear from the Lord. He woke from his sleep and he obeyed. He obeyed. It wasn't because he had answers to all of his questions. It wasn't because he was probably intellectually satisfied with the command. It's because the angel of the Lord gave him the word from the Lord. And the right response to a word from the Lord is obedience. In the face of that kind of command, obedience requires not intellectual satisfaction. It requires faith. It requires faith. That I believe that what you're telling me is true. I can't explain it. I can't vouch for it. But I, I, I trust you. And so I trust your word. Joseph, like Abraham and others before him, believed God and then followed his word. Now there's a quick side note here that I just want to get into the theological weeds for a minute. Um, theologians have called this idea of the virgin birth um, it is called the virgin birth, but specifically what we're talking about when we're talking about the miracle is we're talking about the phrase, the immaculate conception, right? It's not that the Holy Spirit put a nine-month-old baby in Mary's womb. It's that he was conceived miraculously. That, you get the difference there? Okay. So the immaculate conception is vital to our faith. I would argue that this is one of those things you cannot reject this, all right? Like it is a miracle of miracles and it is not something up for debate. It's not something for us as Christians to go, I just really think Matthew and Luke and these guys kind of got it wrong. 
That they kind of like mythologized something that happened naturally and physically. No. This is something that we hold with a closed hand. What this also affirms to you and me and for the church for 2,000 years is what we call the pre-existence of the Son. The pre-existence of the Son. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, that Son is eternal. He is uncreated. He has no start date. And yet, Jesus, the God-man, was conceived somewhere around 3 BC, give or take a few years. The Son is eternal in His divinity. His humanity is not eternal. His humanity did not exist in eternity past, but it will exist forever. Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, is fully God, fully man, and He will be forever in glory and power. The Son existed before the man Christ Jesus was conceived. But in the immaculate conception, the eternal Son added to himself a human nature. So when John tells you in his gospel that the Son, the Word, put on flesh and dwelled among us, that's what he means. All right, off the side road, back to Matthew 1. What was it that Joseph believed that caused him to obey God? What, what did he hear? Not just that this child was a miracle. What's conceived in your wife is from the Spirit. That's not all that he heard. The angel continues. Look at verse 20. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. She'll have a son, the angel says, and you will call his name Jesus. Now again, we got to get into the weeds just a little bit because names are hard in the Bible because we're translating translations. And so Jesus is the English translation of the Greek name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Yahashua. So if you go Hebrew to Greek to English, you get Jesus, Right? If you go Hebrew to English, you get Joshua. You get Joshua. So the name Joshua is ultimately rooted in the same root name that we get the name Jesus. Now, why is that important? Because we know of another Joshua in the Old Testament, don't we? We know one that's in the room right now. Um, kind of farther along than the other ones. So... What did Joshua do in the Old Testament? He led his people, following Moses, out of exile and slavery into the land that God promised. Sometimes it's shortened to the name Yeshua. Sometimes it's Yahashua. Sometimes it's Jesus in the Greek. At the end of the day, that word, that name means this, Yahashua. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Salvation, Or the shortened form, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. So the clear teaching from this word and from the angel is what? That Yahweh is the one who saves his people. God is the one who brings salvation to sinners. God is the one who brings salvation to those who could never, ever deserve it. And yet, 
The angel says to Joseph, you're going to call your son Jesus. You're going to call your son Jehoshua. You're going to call your son Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Yahweh saves. Jesus saves. We're saying the same thing. And the angel gives the reason for this name. He will save his people from their sins. Not might be saved. Not may be saved. They will be saved. This little boy in Mary's womb will do all that God has promised and he will bring salvation to all his people. Don't miss how definitive this is. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, Your salvation is secure because Jesus will save his people from their sins. That's a name that you can find rest in. And then Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, 14 to clearly call his readers back to this prophecy. Behold, the virgin will conceive a bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. But notice there's a slight difference. In verse 21, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus. But in the quotation of Isaiah in verse 23, it says, they shall call his name Emmanuel. You shall call his name Jesus. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So let's put it all together. God's promised word by the power of the Holy Spirit has took on flesh and is growing in Mary's womb. He's been given a name that means Yahweh saves, but the reason why he receives that name is because he will save his people from their sins. And then a prophecy is recited that says that they will call him Emmanuel. Students, God brings salvation to us by coming down to us himself and becoming like us himself and taking our sins on himself in the person and work of Jesus. God dwells with us so that he might save us. This son of David, the true king over all, is also the savior of the world. Matthew, in the first chapter of his gospel, is cluing us in to what's about to take place in the next 27 chapters. Now, as we close this morning, flip over to the end, Matthew chapter 28. This wonderful news that Yahweh saves and Jesus will be the Savior. He will be the one to save his people from their sins. And this quotation that reminds us that God is with us. This son of the virgin is Emmanuel. We go to a series of verses that we are all familiar with. This Son of Abraham who will bless the nations. This son of David who will reign over all the earth. What does he say at the end of his earthly ministry? Verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I am the son of David. A king is the one who has authority. And now I have all authority in heaven and earth. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You are now the vehicle through which the blessings of God will come to the nations. Go and make disciples 
of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Son of David, Son of Abraham, promised Savior, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. And I don't send you out alone to complete the task that I have given you as king. I don't send you out to go bless the nations in my name without my presence. I'm with you always. Praise God for his goodness. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his word. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we do confess you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. And your spirit dwells within us as your people. Adopted into the family of God. Given new hearts. Washed in your blood. Servants in your kingdom. Agents of blessing the nations by your power recipients of your grace. We step back from your word and we worship because only you, God, only you could pull off the impossible. And you've seen fit to draw us into this story ourselves and by your grace to save us from our sins. God, we praise you. We pray that for the next few moments, the conversations that we have will be edifying and encouraging. And Lord, I pray full of praise, full of worship. I think the right response of coming away from your word, especially from this text, is to be filled with wonder at who you are. We thank you, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.